Hello and welcome to Euractiv's Agri-Food Podcast. I'm Natasha Foote. And I'm Gerardo Fortuna. And here's your weekly update on all things agriculture and food in the EU from Euractiv's Agri-Food News team. So on average, 86% of the population in uh, European urban areas has access to fast broadband, while more than 40% of homes in rural areas still do not have it. And the need to speed up the broadband infrastructure of Europe's rural areas is crucial for the uptake of uh, smart solutions in uh, farming, such as precision farming, of course. Um, Solution that will be able to provide tangible results for both local societies and the environment. And today we're we're going to speak about this and other digital aspects of the European agriculture with your active digital editor, a good friend of ours, uh, Samuel Stolton. Welcome to the AgriFood Podcast, Sam. Hi, guys. Very pleased to be here. Thank you for having me. No, we're very happy to have you. Such an high-level guest, right, Tash? I'm <laughs> honoured to be um, stepping on the footsteps of one Sam Morgan after his uh, appearance last week. So uh, I'm looking All the forward- Sams. All the Sams on the podcast. Yeah, who's going to be next? I need to find another Sam. You Any do. Sams out there listening? <laughs> Get in touch. <laughs> We're actually offering some, offering you some leisure hours. I mean, taking you away from the coverage of the Digital Service Act. So, I mean, yeah, actually, it's a welcome respite from that. <laughs> it's uh, complete chaos. As many of you who are listening um, and maybe following the ongoing debate with the DSA and the DMA will know that it's uh, yeah, final few days now. But anyway, let's not talk about that. That's not what I'm here for. No, back to Agri. Yeah. yeah. So our starting point today is the award ceremony of the Farming by Satellite Prize, uh, the 2020 edition. This is a prize organized by the GSA, so the European Agency in charge of uh, managing operations and service provision of uh, Galileo and Agnos. There were five competing teams in the fine in this final, proposing their innovative solutions to uh, that look to improve agriculture and reduce environmental impacts uh, using the European satellite technologies. And the winner was, drumroll please, a project from Spain, uh, Grain, uh, actually Graniot. So basically it was a web application for agronomists and farmers uh, to conduct weekly uh, crop monitoring by using uh, the European satellite technology. So the first thing that pops into my head is that these satellite-based systems uh, are provided free of charge. So, I mean, we're talking about technology that was developed for civilian use, uh, I mean, not like the Russian and the US ones. Uh, which were originally conceived for military purposes. So this opened, of course, a lot of possibilities that uh, can be used by innovative businesses and public administrations as well. But at the same time, it needs uh, investment, for instance, in equipment, uh, and at the same time requires a good pre-existing infrastructure. So what's your take on this, Sam? I mean, could this um, uh, act as a catalyst for more costs for farmers? I know it seems like, uh, like a paradox. Well, I don't think it's necessarily the farmers that should bear the cost. I mean, you know, they need a lot of financial support as it is. So I'm not quite sure whether they should be the ones to uh, uh, have an extra fiscal burden on themselves. But what I think is really important is for the EU to look at those countries in which these types of infrastructures are woefully underdeveloped. Um, And if you take a look at this year's Digital Economy and Society Index, 
you've got certain countries such as Greece, Cyprus, Bulgaria, Croatia, that are well down the list um, in terms of their connectivity parameters. And it's these countries that really need the support uh, much more than uh, certain other countries, such as, by the way, Spain, that's got a fantastic um, connectivity um, track record. And even in the the world of 5G, it's probably going to be EU's leading nation in that regard. So I think there's a lot of um, kind of corners of Europe that are completely being left behind by the digital transition. Most of these are kind of concentrated to rural areas as well, like you say. Um, and, uh, you know, we mustn't forget them, really, because without that investment in this type of infrastructure, um, they could lose out in the long term. And this affects the whole ecosystem. But it's not just about um, infrastructure and capacity building. It's also about skills uh, and education. Like, I mean, not many farmers know how to operate a drone or know the insides of um, how to make the most of uh, satellite navigation systems in order for precision farming techniques and things like that. So a lot of people say to me, in terms of capacity building and, and education and things like that, they say that the skills should come before the technology, um, because if the technology comes first, then people don't really know how to make the most of it. Mm, and talking about kind of corners being left behind and woefully underdeveloped infrastructure. So as part of the Commission's efforts to um, achieve the goals of the, of the Green Deal, they're looking to ro roll out broadband um, to these rural areas, as you were talking about. Um, but, you know, we're talking about a huge undertaking. Um, so they're saying that, that Europe needs to invest something like 200 billion euros um, for citizens in rural areas to have broadband access of uh, at least 100 megabits per second. And I was just wondering, you know, what where we're at where the state of play is at the moment with that and do you think this is something that's feasible yeah so i mean that 200 billion figure is um a bit vague and i would love to see the uh, the, the calculations in that but the commission's going to look to encourage investment in broadband infrastructure through various instruments including such things as the uh, 2016 broadband cost reduction directive um the Commission launched a review of that recently. And effectively, the, the, the aim of this directive is to make sure that broadband is affordable for people and businesses, right? Because it can be quite expensive to roll out en masse, and particularly in certain parts of rural Europe where, um, depending on the type of connectivity, um, you know, roads have to be dug up and this infrastructure takes a lot of time to um, install and implement and things like that. Um, that being said as well, in terms of broader connectivity goals, you have um, the goal outlined in the um, Electronic Communications Act, I believe it was called, um, that all member states would um, begin to deploy in some format um, 5G uh, by the end of the year, or that they would have conducted their spectrum auctions by the end of the year for particular frequency bands. Uh, what we're seeing now um, in this arena is a mad rush um, from many countries across Central and Eastern Europe, particularly, to um, hold these auctions for 5G uh, spectrum frequencies um, because they know that actually they would be um, breaking the EU's electronic communications code. If they didn't do that, um, they would be breaching EU law. 
So there's a mad rush for 5G at the moment. But of course, this comes hand in hand with a lot of the risks that people have raised with regards to um, the security of the network infrastructure, um, the geopolitical concerns, uh, and of course, the protection of data. Um, now, we're not talking about personal data when it comes to farming. We're talking about industrial data. And the EU, of course, has other plans in that area that maybe we can talk about a bit later on. Uh, I briefly follow up on uh, the navigational aspects, which actually are the backbone of, of uh, digitalization in every sector. And, and of course, agriculture is no exception. Um, so um, we're talking about Copernicus that provides detailed pictures of the fields, uh, Galileo that indicates the position, and Egnos, uh, which is an additional tool that corrects the signal and uh, because it could be distorted due to, for instance, atmospheric disturbances. Uh, and all the three together lower the number of uh, required on-the-spot checks because uh, because they make them easier. And this could also lead to, I mean, first, a, a better spending of taxpayers' money because you, it costs less money because you don't, you don't have to uh, do this uh, on-the-spot check. Because, of course, we're talking about um, instruments that are able to clarify what is happening in a field and, and sometimes without even visiting a farm. Uh, which, which of course saves uh, financial resources, but and and the first priority of the next common agricultural policy is less bureaucracy. But is it, it is also true that uh, farmers they feel more like controlled and same. This aspect of control is something that goes hand in hand with digitalization, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Um, I mean, it's a very very broad subject. Um, and I haven't personally spoken to any farmers <laughs> about, <laughs> um, about living in. I should do, yeah. Um, I, I don't actually know any, which is um, rather embarrassing. On oh. Well, you're in the right place, don't worry. <laughs> yes, yeah, with the, your active farming crowd. Um, the, the question I believe you're asking, Gerardo, is um, are farmers aware really of the, the zeitgeist of surveillance capitalism? Um, phew. I have no idea. I mean, of course, this is a this is a topic that's incredibly pertinent in other um, technology communities, uh, you know, such as those who work um, in artificial intelligence advocacy or those who work in uh, as part of our privacy communities or in data protection. You know, they are um, incredibly aware of of uh, the age of surveillance capitalism and um, the types of worrying use uses of these uh, data streams by um, the public sector or governmental bodies or organizations. Um, I must admit, I'm not an expert in the type of data that can be extracted from farming processes, but I, I find it hard to believe that farmers can get that, um, shall I say, defensive about their data um, being siphoned off. Maybe they do. It depends. On it depends. It depends because it, even subsidies are linked to... Uh, certain aspect right. that I mean with you know uh, you can escape uh, the eye of, uh, of a machine let's say well I think the difference is as well because I know you, you, you said earlier something about you know it's not personal data it's industrial data but I think what is really particular about the farming community is that you know those there's not really that distinction you know for these people this is their their livelihoods is their way of life I think it's kind of actually incredibly personal mm. for many farmers um and you know i think we talk a lot about data protection concerns 
and personal data to do with things like health. Um, but I but I don't think that we have maybe, well, in my opinion, actually, I should ask you whether we have enough kind of focus on this in agriculture and, you know, how, how we can kind of protect this data. Because I do think it is something that's kind of can be incredibly sensitive. Well, yeah. And I mean, this is going to be one of the big challenges of um, the EU's data strategy, right, which is um, to distinguish between what is industrial data, which the EU wants to liberalise and make the most out of, and what is personal data, which effectively the the Commission has ring-fenced and protected under the GDPR and uh, various other instruments like the e-privacy directive, which is, again, supposed to become a regulation, but uh, member states haven't been able to agree um, on a on a position with Parliament yet. Um, yeah, I, I think agriculture does get lost out in, in this debate um, in the wider kind of media sphere of things. And uh, there's a lot of talk around health data, of course, at the moment, because we're living in the middle of a pandemic and um, people are aware of both the innovative applications of health data, but also the fact that these are incredibly sensitive data streams. Um, that many people wouldn't want disclosed uh, in the public domain. With the specific example of of, uh, farming data, yeah, Natasha, I think you're absolutely right. I think um, the difficulty here of distinguishing between uh, what is personal and what is non-personal is going to be so challenging, particularly in this sector, because you imagine a farmer's everyday working life. I mean, he, he lives at his workplace. Um, so the data streams that can be extracted from that activity in terms of like working hours or the temperature of the soil or, or how often, I don't know, plants or certain things are watered or feeding times. Um, I can imagine this would reflect um, quite strongly, actually, on how that farmer himself or his team works on a day to day basis. Um, I'm not an expert on on farming or agriculture so i don't know the types of data streams that could be extracted from that activity but i would imagine yeah there would be a lot of difficulty in distinguishing between that personal and non-personal kind of bifurcation and i think you're right i mean it is just kind of a bit of an unknown kind of you know what how this data can be shared and the ramifications of it which is you know what you were talking about Uh, when you guys speak to farmers how do they feel about the the rapid digitalization of their sector Obviously, each farmer you speak to is a diff- you know it's a different story. It's not kind of a homogenous um, kind of thing. Mm. I think definitely, you know, we're seeing we can see a lot of the real benefits from what can come from it, and you know, it's very exciting to be kind of innovating and things. But there's definitely, I think, uh, a lot of farmers I've spoken to this kind of reluctance or like a reticence of, well, what are you going to do with my data? And you know, and and, and for them, I think it's it's not always clear what's going to happen, and I think they very kind of protective as you said over their livelihoods what data are they most concerned about some of the data that you were referring to um about you know the quality of your land the quality of your soil things like that 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 can then have a real massive ramification on like their land value if they then want to sell something or um you know if if you know when a farmer's going to plant something then seed companies will know when to put the prices up of a certain seed because they know the pattern things like that you know there's Mm. i think quite and that's obviously we're just talking maybe economic Um, i'm sure there's also other ramifications but also as well what gerardo said about subsidies if you have some sort of data that could expose (laughs) 
may be uh, the fact that you don't need as much money as uh, yeah. your government you did, then of course I can imagine certain farmers wouldn't be too happy about that. Well, I, I remember in when I was when I was working in Greece, um, we had the farmers there were very reluctant because there was. Um, uh, in the past, there were kind of pictures taken of um, the farms. And if you had a certain percentage of tree cover, you were then suddenly not um, in the farming subsidies. You weren't eligible for certain subsidies. Um, and they were very, very scared of that. And they didn't want, because they always had olive groves and they had sheep underneath it. And, and there was a, a fear that photos taken from above would not reflect what they were, you know, what was really going on. Yes, they had trees, but it wasn't, whatever, it had to be a certain percentage things like that I think there was a reluctance um to kind of get involved at the same time we used drones when we were in Greece and it was like so useful to map out the land and lay out our contours and stuff so we can kind of see the benefits and then the in terms of control I mean uh we're talking about a constant uh collection of data so um I mean farmers are kind of used to uh again on the spot check that could last one day but even even one week and then uh once the expert um or the tax authority um had collected all the 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 things he needs for for his assessment or his or her assessment and then it's over no while uh with for instance um the involvement of this uh, satellite uh systems again you are 24 hour um kind of control no and and the 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 amount of data that could be shared uh, with tax authority or in general involve a wide range of uh, of uh, aspects of uh, of the farming practices yeah definitely and i think um if if applied erroneously it can be used as a um apparatus of control for sure and even more concerning in the context of the eu's liberalization of industrial data if it makes that data available to competitors as well or it um, forces certain farmers to share particular data streams with competitors you know this could be used to completely destabilize the market Mm. Uh, so yeah there are there are concerns there that i don't think are being raised and another concern that was that, that is quite mentioned by farmers uh, it's it's on something that you mentioned, Sam. It's basically the skills, not the education, because uh, they think that investment should be directed not only towards uh, you know research and development, but also towards the practical implementation of new technologies on the ground. So, for instance, I spoke with a farmer once, and and he said that uh, there's a new heat detection technology that could offer uh, the livestock farmers the option to to manage their herds more efficiently. But in the end of the day, um, it is simply very expensive to get things works, and uh, and farmers are not keen to invest, uh, you know, this, this such an amount due to a lack of knowledge. I mean, it costs a lot. I don't understand it much. Uh, how how to you know put in place this uh, this technology? So this is another concern. It's not involving the data. It's it's uh, quite common. Um, concern from farmers when it comes to digitalization yeah of course um so the things you've got to look at in this context are the skills agenda or i should say rather the revised skills agenda that the commission published what uh september i think it was 
um, and they also published the Digital Education Action Plan. Um, the Commission recognises this need to upskill and reskill many of Europe's um, workers who have kind of been left behind by the digital transition or are being left behind by the digital transition. And of course, this isn't only a generational thing. Um, this um, cuts across all sorts of different demographics um, who are being left behind by the digital uh, revolution. And they're just not going to be so mobile in the jobs market of the future, particularly if you imagine young farmers today uh, going to agricultural school, um, what types of subjects are most pertinent for their future um, career? you would imagine there to be quite a substantial um, attention paid to digitalization in the farming world. Um, but of course, many, many institutions and educational establishments across the European Union haven't quite modernized to an extent by which they are teaching their students about um, uh, the importance of technology and dig digitalization in, in this sector. And it's not only that, but it's also reaching out to you know, the age-old farmers who have been doing the, the same business for decades and letting them know, actually, you can massively improve efficiency with the help of some of these digital tools. And I imagine, actually, that many of these farmers would be quite reluctant to change their ways. Um, it's regarded, um, you know, from my very uh, ignorant perspective of the farming industry, but you imagine it as a very traditional um, type of business um so yeah I, I believe the encouragement has to be there uh and the support has to be there most importantly the money has to be there to reskill and retrain these farmers there's the this issue of the technological neutrality so basically you know preferring a certain technology over another and at the moment the agriculture sector is quite neutral i would say um, you don't have like the uh, the debate that you had uh, five or, or, or ten years ago in the energy sector when there was a struggle between, uh, you know, technologies when it comes to digitalization. Uh, I don't know if you're a fan of neutrality, but it is something that every sector are bound to face. So basically um, deciding which, which kind of technology to support uh, or, or, or to, to promote. Mm. Well, I think technology neutrality, the concept itself, is quite nebulous and vague, um, in particularly in terms of its application. I think, in theory, it's always a good uh, idea to, you know, adopt a position where no technology is necessarily pre preferential to another one. Um, particularly, I think, for sectoral uses, um, it should necessarily be about efficiency and it should be about um, respect for the EU's fundamental values um, in terms of the cr criteria by which certain technological applications are preferred to others. Um, and, you know, this is something that I think the Commission would, would support itself. Um, of course, uh, there are geopolitical implications to this as well. Uh, there are certain technologies um, emanating from distant corners of of the earth that simply uh, would never be able to uh, be applied across a, a mass sector in the European Union because of the country they come from. And we're seeing more and more of this in the connectivity space um, with regards to the provision of 5G infrastructure um, and you know certain Chinese firms in particular. Um, 
so yeah, I think I think technology neutrality has its merits, um, but it the 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 concept, the theory is caught up in a wider ecosystem of uh, very very complicated and nuanced arguments that don't make it so easy. I think diversity in the market is always massively important, um, but again, you have to you know choice is important for farmers as well. And each farmer has their own way of doing things and they should be given the freedom to to decide upon which technologies perform the tasks most efficiently, I believe. Um, and of course, the, the, the kind of wide scope and multifaceted patchwork of, of farming on the European Union um, should mean that there will be a diverse scope of technologies offered up to the market and um, you know that should be something embraced by farmers from all cloths great well thank you very much for coming on the podcast today it's been great to pick your brains on this and hear your thoughts on this and definitely need to brush up a bit more on my digital knowledge so that's been uh, it's been really interesting thank pleasure you. thank you for having me on So this week, there was uh, an interesting report that came out from the consumer advocacy group, uh, Safe Food Advocacy Europe, or known as, then uh, also known as SAFE. Um, and this report was looking at the term natural on food products. So you've probably seen um, on food products, things like 100% natural, all natural ingredients. Um, well, this report is basically saying that this these kind of terms are, are pretty much baseless they're actually not really um, got clear guidelines or definitions at the EU level um, for what it means um, for what you need to have in the products to call it natural and so they're saying that this kind of label can be um, can be misleading for consumers and so they looked at the composition of hundreds of products that are currently um, available on the market and this includes things like soft drinks sauces sweets um, and they found that many that use a natural claim um, actually include synthetic substances such as flavorings um, and synthetic e-numbers. So this is pretty interesting. Um, and, you know, they're, they're calling for the EU to kind of step up and do something and, and, and provide a legal definition of um, what can be considered natural. Um, so I spoke to uh, an EU source who um, who told me that at the moment, you know, while the Commission is open to considering proposals to improve legislation, um, there isn't actually currently a concrete plan to define the term natural for, for general use on food labelling. But this is also pretty interesting because in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, we've seen a, a renewed interest from people in kind of healthier foods and, and maybe eating more naturally uh, is, is part of that so we've seen more of an interest from consumers in in buying things that, that you know are, are perceived as natural um, or maybe better for you or healthier um, so it is a pretty interesting moment for the report to come out um, so yeah how about you Joari did that attract you as a consumer it's, it's true it's true what you said there's the same pattern even when it comes to health so there's that rethinking of the natural component because i mean yeah. for instance even in terms of uh, promoting innovation uh in healthcare you no know, the eu has always been a bit more you know leaning toward synthetic or 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 
you know artificial drugs let's say so there's mm-hmm. uh, there's uh, this swift over the rediscovering the natural uh, components of course we're not talking about replacing but uh, you know um, i mean there's a place even for for this uh, um, again natural products of mm-hmm. course uh, so it's it's quite interesting it's quite interesting and I think that we're going to see uh, more on this aspect, even because, I mean, the regulatory aspects are not that clear. Uh, I mean, you know that in, in the EU, there's this uh, novel food category, which is like a huge category um, where are listed all the food stuff uh, that have been conceived after 1999, I think. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think that, we could also expect to move on this um, uh, this uh, novel food approach and and some of this uh, food uh, that actually involve also natural aspects uh, need a better definition. Mm. Yeah, I think it's, you know, regardless of what, what your personal opinion is and things, it's more about, you know, when you buy something, you, you want to know what what you're buying, you know, kind of this... Um, also because it's uh, you know there's a new focus on uh, labeling and uh, and of course I mean, we're talking about the front of pack of food stuff of food stuff so um, yeah it's it, it also linked to the and again the one of the main objective with the farm to first strategy is this push uh, you know this nudge uh, for consumers uh, to uh, make the healthier choice and to inform consumers so that they can make, you know, whatever decision they want to make, whether it's the healthy one or not, you know, it's not for me to judge, but that they that they understand enough to make that decision. Um, so it's interesting to kind of put natural as well in part of the equation. We talk mostly about things like origin labeling and nutrition labeling, Indeed. but it's, uh, it's an, an, an additional interesting component of the labeling debate, I'd say. And you know what's interesting? What's that? I can give you this news. It seems that the European Parliament and the Commission made up oh, after the. Mm, that is interesting. I mean, we were worried, uh, but it's. There were some sleepless nights there worrying. Yeah, they, they're trying to restore uh, the mutual trust, you know, after the recent, you know, quarrels about, about the. Yeah, the, the spat about the, the, the reform of the common agricultural policy. You remember it was. Uh, uh, Timmermans. Uh, actually, we speak about this like every week. Um, so Timmermans hinted that uh, at the possibility of retracting the the Commission proposal, while actually the negotiators are are negotiating. So the Parliament was a bit irritated. I mean, particularly the negotiator, because for instance, the Greens group is in favor of uh, Timmermans' stance. There was this agriculture, this um, European Parliament's Agriculture Committee hearing at the beginning of the week, I think on Monday, and there was, uh, and actually, the commissioner spoke on uh, Tuesday because it, it was a two-day hearing um, session, and uh, and basically, you know, it's uh, during the hearing some MEP MEPs demanded further clarification on the commission's stance. It's still not clear. It's still not clear because I mean the commission keeps open the door for uh, withdrawal, not at this stage, but you never know. 
And uh, for instance, there was the Italian MEP uh, Herbert Dorfman, who's also the agriculture coordinator of the largest party, the European People's Party, Christian Democrats. Uh, that basically said that the commission su- should tone it down and, and ensure that there is a genuine uh, dialogue on the strategic plans, uh, which is one of the core aspects of the Common Agricultural Policy Reform. And so um, the impression of, of some MEPs is that uh, the commission is more acting as a defender of sustainability rather than an honest broker. And actually, Wojciechowski uh, told MEPs that the EU executive is determined to play its role of an honest broker during the negotiation, but at the same time uh, being a driver for greater sustainability. So in the end, they made up, but I mean, the, the issue is still unsolved. And this week, something else interesting that happened um, was that the EU Ombudsman released a report about the uh, the procedure for the approval of active substances and pesticides, where uh, they, they criticised the procedure and outlined several recommendations for measures to improve the uh, approval process and also increase its transparency. So the conclusion basically evaluates the method by which the European Commission approves these active substances. And it concluded that where the European Food Safety uh, Authority, so EFSA, identifies uh, critical areas of concern or does not identify a safe use, the Commission should seek clarifications from EFSA before approving uh, the active substance in question in accordance with the precautionary principle. So that's not actually necessarily what happens um, at the moment. So, uh, so so basically for an active, active substance to be approved on the EU market, the producer must first uh, submit an application to EFSA. EFSA carries out a scientific risk assessment um, and this provides the basis of the EU Commission's approval or its conditions for the approval. Um, but basically, um, so the Pesticide Action Network Europe, uh, known as Pan Europe, is an NGO that works campaigns against pesticides. They filed a complaint uh, a few years ago with the Ombudsman Office, uh, basically denouncing what they consider to be unlawful approvals of active substances. Um, And this is because of the Commission's practice of approving certain substances when uh, either there was no safe limit that was identified yet, or um, there's also this kind of method known as confirmatory data um, and that is when uh, maybe there'll be an approval of a substance but there'll be we'll be awaiting additional data to come later the eu ombudsman basically they concluded that this kind of practice raises concerns um they're fairly critical actually in the report which was quite interesting um and so yeah you can check it out it's online uh, you can check out uh, the article on your active for more details I'd say it was a very good investigative reporting, also because the the ombudsman, the new ombudsman uh, Emily O'Reilly, uh, mm-hmm. she's a former a former journalist actually. Is she? Yeah. Ah, that explains her thorough. Yeah, indeed. Because it was very thorough. It was very thorough. This report. Um, so it's quite interesting because the conclusion is not actually legally binding, but um, but it is interesting and also obviously comes in the context of with the farm to fork strategy. Um, you know, looking to take action over pesticide um, use and, and risk. And speaking of the farm to fork strategy, one of the measures that are uh, listed in the in the EU flagship food policy is uh, uh, the one that tried to address 
um, the misuse of uh, date marking that actually lead to a significant amount of food waste. Uh, I mean, we're talking about the use by or um, best before date that we, we see on the front of pack of our food products. So uh, although they seem similar, the use by date on food is about safety, food safety, of course. So uh, meaning that food should not be eaten after this day, uh, regardless of appearance. While the best before refers to quality, meaning that food is still safe to eat after this date, but may not be at its best, let's say. So um, the European Food Safety uh, Agency, EFSA, um, has presented a new uh, tool to help business operators deciding when to apply the use by or best before date to their products, which is a tool intended to cut food waste, of course, because we see that, uh, for instance, that there was a, a, um, the European Commission estimates that up to 10% of the 88 million tons of food waste generated every year in the EU is linked to date marking on products. But at the same time, this is a very long-standing issue. Uh, there was a, an agri-fish council, so a, a gathering of ministers, in 2014, uh, where there was the first attempt made by a coalition of member states to um, provide some exception indication in the, in the indication of the expiry date for products. So uh, it would have led to the best before reference disappear, uh, but it was challenged by another group of countries uh, led by Italy. I remember that the, the then agricultural minister, uh, Martina, uh, argued that uh, the solution for reducing food waste was not by dis- discussing the label issues, issue alone and that quality of food products was as important as their safety for Italy and these uh, uh, countries. So um, this uh, new tool could actually reopen, uh, I mean, this long-standing issue. And also uh, the Netherlands, before the, the, the preparation of uh, the launch of the farm to first strategy, the Dutch government again proposed uh, to extend the list of products that do not need date marking as they do not present um, any health risk in order to tackle food waste. So uh, watch this space and uh, this could be a very um, interesting topic to follow up on in the mm. coming months. 10% of 88 million tons, that's considerable. Indeed, indeed, indeed. Down to, down to labels, there's not an insignificant amount, so... And again, it it uh, it's adding uh, more fuel to the already, um, you know, inflammatory uh, discussion over uh, labeling, food labeling. Labeling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, more discussions on labeling. <laughs> this week, the AgriFood podcast is produced by Euractiv's AgriFood team, Gerardo Fortuna and Natasha Foot. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest agricultural news from the EU. And this uh, podcast is also available on all major streaming platforms. So that includes Apple, Amazon, Spotify and Stitcher. I'm Natasha Foote. Thank you for listening and see you next week.